title of today's message is Serving Like Jesus. And if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 13, if you want to turn there. How many people got to watch the Super Bowl at, or Super Bowl this year? Anybody remember that ad that was in there? Of um, it's, It showed a whole bunch of paintings and pictures of people washing the feet of other people. And everybody was talking about, you know, how, how great it was, and it ended with the statement of he gets us. He meaning Jesus. And it looked very Christian. And on closer inspection, it seemed to be sending a very specific message. And there was something when I was watching that video live, I just didn't feel right about it. So I went to the website and watched the ad again several times, examined the pictures, and then looked at what the people who put this ad together really think. And most people didn't notice that someone was washing the feet of someone outside an abortion clinic. There was also another person washing the feet of a person representing an illegal immigrant. There was a straight person washing the feet of a gay person. There was a person washing the feet of a drug addict. A person washing the feet of a violent protester. Again, it looks pretty Christian. But what they were saying there, and if you look at their website, it would also says that Jesus gets you. He gets why you do the things you do, and he loves you anyway. So is this true or not? I think it's true. But that true has a condition to it as well. It's very important condition. It's that he loves you enough to grab you from that sin that you are involved with and lift you out and save you. That is what the message really should have sent. And it's central to the most important part verses for me in the Bible. And these verses are what I kind of filter the entire Bible through. And it's John 3.16 and 17. And I'm going to quote them from the Christian Standard Bible. That's the, the Bible here that I'm reading this year. And John 3, 16 and 17, we've all heard this hundreds of times, so I'm going to just quote it from a different translation. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So we can say that, yes, Jesus indeed does get us. But he really wants to get us out of sin. Because the consequence of unrepentant sin is eternal damnation. And that's what he wanted to address when he um, came and washed feet. And I want to address that ad today because it has a lot to do with what we are talking about this morning. In John chapter 3, we have the biblical reference of Jesus being a servant to his disciples by washing their feet. The background of this story is that they've just completed the Last Supper. Jesus has given them the observance of what we today call Holy Communion, He's about to lead his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and begin what will be known as his passion, the beginning of his journey to the cross and dying for our sins. 
Even though Jesus does a great amount of teaching along the way to the garden, this is his last act to his chosen followers. And he shows them a picture of what he is about to do and become for them. So that's, that's the background of what's, going, of what's happening here. So let's read the scripture. And again, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Jesus knew the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but only my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except for his feet but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. And when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this section of Scripture. I thank you because this section of Scripture, more than most, shows your character, shows your heart. It shows your desire for us and how you want us to live. Lord God, help us to read this scripture, help us to study it, and help us to put it into our life so we can learn to serve like you did. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. So to properly understand these passages, bear with me for a moment. I'm going to give a quick history lesson regarding the time and culture that Jesus is speaking to here in the Gospel of John. And the first one is the time that they live in. Now, the entirety of the New Testament was written in the first century. With the exception of the book of Revelation, it dealt mostly with the nations and cultures surrounding the Mediterranean Sea, or what was the Roman Empire. And most notably for us this morning that we have to remember is that slavery was allowed in the Roman Empire. But with some limited, it did have some limited legal rules protecting slaves and how they could be treated, Although they were not well enforced, it was more socially regulated that it spoke well of you socially if your slaves were happy in their service to you. Now, the, one of the catching points for many people is that Jewish culture and religious law, as you see in the Old Testament, also permitted slavery. And that's a huge sticking point for a lot of people who don't understand the entirety of the Bible, and they want to say God is evil because he, he condones slavery. But what they don't understand is the slavery practice in the Bible 
is not the same as it was in the African slave trade. It wasn't the same as it was practiced in many of the Muslim countries um, in antiquity. It was very different than what was practiced elsewhere. Slavery in the Old Testament in ancient Israel was their social welfare program. If a person fell on very hard times, if they lost their business, if a wildfire took out their crops, if raiding parties came and took every, all their cattle and everything they had, and they were absolutely homeless and destitute, they had a way out of this. They could sell themselves into slavery for no more than seven years to a fellow Israelite. It was no more than seven years. The master of the house would pay them a very small stipend as well as provide for their needs while withholding part of that fair wage as they went for the services that they were doing. At the end of the seven years, they would be freed from slavery and they would have a lump sum earned over the last seven years to help them purchase land or a business or cattle or, or whatever they needed to reestablish themselves in Israel. So it wasn't so much slavery as it was an indentured servitude. And it's important to understand that when the people say that the Bible condones and prescribes slavery, it's wrong. It's incorrect. Again, it was their social welfare program. Saying that, even in the New Testament or during, during Jesus' time, there were slaves in most wealthy persons' households. The second part of this culture is that most of the footwear was sandal-based. Open-toed shoes. The roads were pressed dirt. They weren't nice concrete or, or black top or anything like what we have here. It was all pressed dirt. In the cities, you shared these roads with various animals that would use the road to relieve themselves occasionally. We know what that's like around here with the Amish buggies occasionally. They kind of leave something behind as they walk past. So that would be left in the middle of the road and people would be walking there. Couple that with people throwing garbage and the contents of their chamber pots out the window, and you can imagine what most people were walking through to get anywhere. Imagine how the city must have smelled. Is it any wonder why diseases killed more people than any wars? So keeping these two things in mind, we go back to the incident with Jesus washing feet. Now you're having a dinner party. The invited guests on the way into your house would stop either right outside the house or on a porch or portico of some type, and the lowest-ranking slave in that house would have to remove your sandals and wash all that junk off of your feet. That's where the practice of foot washing came from because they didn't want to track that in their house. And typically at a high-class dinner party, you weren't sitting at a table, you reclined at the table. So you were laying on your left side eating with your right hand, kind of leaning against the table. So your feet were sticking out for everybody to see, and nobody wanted to see what you tracked in. Now, I had to tell you all this so you can see the symbolism described here in the Gospel of John. Jesus is taking the role of the lowest slave of the household, the one who had the worst job of anyone else. He is washing the grossness off of his disciples' feet. And it's a foreshadowing of how Jesus is going to spend the last 12 hours or so of his life. Because this is going to be the time of what is known as his passion, his arrest, his beating, his scourging, and then his crucifixion and death. 
all of that to wash the grossness of sin off of anyone who would believe in him. And in my opinion, that's where the Super Bowl ad fell short. It used this example from John's Gospel as a prescription for all humanity, regardless of their willingness to repent of their sins. And I don't know if the creators of the ad realized this, but I think they did actually more damage than good. Temptation of Jesus, he's out in the wilderness, fast for 40 days. Devil comes to tempt him. The third temptation of Jesus, Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world if you will bow down and worship me. In other words, if Satan was tempting us this way, he would say, I'll give you all you came for. I will let you have all those meat sacks you call humans. I'll let you have all of them. As a matter of fact, not only that, I will let you do whatever you want. If you want to gamble, go gamble. If you want to drink, go drink. If you want to do all these bad things, go ahead and do it. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. For you and I, Satan would simply say, keep your sin, enjoy. And that's the subtle nature of that lie. It would be like finding a meth addict who's selling their body to support their drug habit, washing their feet and sending them on their way. Did you do them any good? Or did you just give them clean feet to walk into hell with? That's where the Super Bowl ad left people who are ignorant about what the Bible says about sin. So let's look at the two reactions to Jesus serving his disciples this way and washing their feet. The first reaction you see is Peter, the proud religious person. Peter objects to Jesus washing his feet. On the surface, it looks like Peter not wanting Jesus to wash his feet is because he didn't want his Lord to humble himself that way. But what I think Peter was objecting to is Jesus needed to wash him at all. He didn't want to appear weak in front of the other people in the room, so he, he, said, he told Jesus, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good, Jesus. You will never wash me. I'm the most loyal follower. I got this whole kingdom thing down. If you wash me, then you're putting me down with the rest of these guys, and I'm the leader, I don't need it. And Peter didn't understand that beneath this bravado and self-righteousness was a man that desperately needed a heart transplant. This blind spot he had regarding his own soul became manifest a few hours later when he denied even knowing Jesus. And if you read it in Luke's gospel, he did it right to his face. It said that Peter denied him the third time and the Lord turned and looked at him. So Jesus heard it. But that's what pride does. It blocks you from seeing yourself for who you really are. And there's no greater pride and no greater self-deception than those who exhibit religious pride. Religious pride, I think, is one of the most powerful tools of the enemy. We've recently seen this in most of our lifetimes here. Nineteen men filled with religious pride and a couple box cutters costing under $10 apiece, caused the death of over 3,000 people on September 11th. How did we respond? 
I would say that we as a nation, and most importantly a church, miss the message that God was sending. So much so that Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle stood on the Capitol steps a few days later and quoted from Isaiah 9.10 when he said, The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild them with dress sown. The fig trees have fallen, but we'll replace them with cedars. The first time you heard a build back better was right there. But I guess a speechwriter forgot to include the verse right before that one that said, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down and we will rebuild them with dressed stone. That's exactly what happened. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have gone after the terrorists. Of course we should. I totally believe in self-defense. We need to vigorously defend ourselves from people who would plan us this kind of harm and, and go after the people who orchestrated this attack and bring them to justice. But I think we went way beyond that. And as a result of our pride, plainly spoken by our political leaders, we spent and went in debt just for the war on terror over $10 trillion. And the global war on terror cost over 900,000 lives. 900,000 lives. And now look what our country has become. 19 men filled with their religious pride and armed only with box cutters may have irreparably damaged the greatest nation the world has ever seen. And this is why Jesus' reaction to Peter's religious pride is so strong. And he said, if I don't wash you, you will have no part in me. Nineteen men's religious pride did all of that damage. The second reaction is that of Judas. Judas had secret sin. And I can't imagine what was going through the heart and mind of Jesus when he came to Judas to wash his feet. This is a man who had followed him for three years. This is a man, along with the other disciples, who were filled with the Holy Spirit and gone out in missionary journeys, used of God to heal the sick, to cast out devils, and to spread the good news of the gospel. There is no evidence of any of the disciples had any suspicion of Judas being anything but a loyal follower. In fact, they trusted him so much, he carried the purse for the ministry. And now Jesus, imagine this, just Jesus on his knees before the man who would shortly leave the gathering. Go find the chief priests and lead a party to arrest Jesus to his eventual crucifixion. Jesus begins to watch the feet that will carry Judas back to him to betray him with a kiss. And now Judas's name is always synonymous with the word tra traitor or betrayal. You know, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus wept or had tears in his eyes during this time, but I have to imagine his heart was breaking as his hand rubbed the dirt and grime from Judas's feet. Because this would be the last time Jesus could look at him as a friend. 
After Judas betrays him, the next time that Jesus will see him, he'll be Judas's judge. And he'll condemn him to the lake of fire for all eternity. Jesus himself said, he will wish you had never been born. Within the church, it's hard to serve sometimes because betrayal and backsliding that we see, we, we see it and it discourages us about being a member of a church family. It's difficult, whether you're a member or the pastor or anyone else, it's, it's soul-crushing to watch a person be set free from sin, experience the joy of their salvation, only to watch them turn around and go back to it. It's heartbreaking. And that's why these passages in the Bible are so powerful to us. This is why we have to serve like Jesus, and we have to remember Jesus washed Judas's feet. He washes enemies' feet. And if Jesus can do that, then we can't turn our backs on people because they fail to meet our expectations. We don't want to leave them where they're at. We want to tell them about Jesus. We want to bring them to the feet of Jesus and bring them into repentance. But at the same time, we don't want to isolate them because they sin differently than we do or do something that we don't approve of. It's a fine line between just excusing a person's sin and exposing that sin and letting them repent from it. And that's a takeaway from today's teaching. And that's to have the heart of Jesus. To serve like Jesus. Um, even when they're prideful, even if they betray you, it's not a serve them like Jesus.